I think one of the missing pieces in my mind, or at least um, still opaque pieces, is um, the level of urgency with which the profession needs to take uh, uh, to, to address this problem. Um, my worry for the legal profession is that if it doesn't get out in front of this, if it doesn't become part of the solution, society is going to somehow leave it behind. Uh, it's going to go around the profession. Um, you know, in, res in return for what essentially is a monopoly to provide legal services in Canada, um, the profession, for example, in Ontario, makes a pr promise to provide access to justice. And I don't think anyone would suggest that we are making particularly good uh, on that uh, access to justice promise. Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the project manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I am guess who? Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. What a shock. <laughs> no. And hello out there, everybody, in lockdown hell in Ontario <laughs> and other places. Yes, hopefully, hopefully this will all be behind us before too long. Eventually. Next yes, season. eventually. Yes. Fingers crossed. Well, fingers crossed. And I hope that everybody out there is getting their yes. shots and taking care of themselves as we are. Yes. Uh, very happy to have both had our first shots yes wonderful. yeah so this week we've got uh, something a little bit different from our usual format we've actually got a guest interviewer who mm. has done a great conversation with very interesting guests and we'll get to that in a second uh but before julie tells you more about that i just want to remind you to stick around to the end of the episode to hear in other news which as you remember we've been kind of having a little bit of a rotating guest list of other news hosts this season and we're back again to our lovely katie faff who is one of our wonderful research assistants at the project and does a really great job finding some great interesting news stories to share with you. So please listen for what Katie has in store at the end of the episode. So as Dana said, uh, today's guest interviewer is former self-represented litigant, author and freelance journalist, Randy Drusen. And Randy has been a very active participant in a lot of NSRLP projects. She's on our blog steering committee. She's attended both of our dialogue events, I believe. And so we thought it would be really interesting to ask Randy to conduct this interview with all of her experience and also her, her expertise as a journalist with Professor Trevor Farrow. Uh, Trevor is the chair of the Canadian Civil Justice Forum, which is an access to justice research group at Osgoode Hall Law School, where Trevor is also associate dean and professor. And the Civil Justice Forum has been around for a long time now, increasingly is focused on access to justice empirical work. And Trevor is, for example, the principal investigator of a project funded by the Social Science and Humanities Research Council on the cost of justice. And you're going to hear him talk a little bit about that in this interview. And Trevor's also worked on other important empirical research on access to justice, including, and we'll put all these links up on the podcast page, a 2016 study um, with a group of others, including Abe Curry, Everyday Legal Problems and the Cost of Justice in Canada. And then an earlier study with the public, this is actually one of my favorites, 
in which basically his team went out and asked people, what is access to justice? What do you think that means? And again, very interesting results. So Trevor's worked often with NSRLP over the years. He was on our advisory board for a while, and we felt it was long overdue to bring him onto the podcast. So we asked Trevor and Randy to sit down and have a conversation, and that's what's coming up next. Okay, so now when it comes to making the legal system more inclusive to self-represented litigants, the pace of change to a lot of people seems to be glacial, that it's moving very, very slowly. Do you agree with that? And if so, what accounts for that? I do think that the pace of change has been really slow for a long time. I'm not sure there was a huge sense that change was needed. Certainly over the past you know, couple of decades, there have been a growing number of reports indicating that we need change, things need to be more responsive, more modern. So it's not like we just discovered that in the past uh, five years. Having said that, I think everyone would agree that the system is not where it should be, that, that change is really difficult, change is really slow, and uh, a lot more needs to be done. Um, in in terms of why that is, I think there, there are a couple of reasons, none of which I don't think are particularly persuasive. Um, you know, a couple of things. One is it wasn't designed for the end user of the system being the public. It seems to me that the system was primarily designed for lawyers and judges as a system to be operationalized, to be created and dispensed by, by those institutional players. And so you know, as you know, you know, given the rise of attention to and awareness of and understanding of uh, self-represented litigants, uh, it's been put, you know, it's, it's really clear that the system was not designed for those people. And those people are no different than any other litigant, other than the fact that they're there without help. And that really puts a, a, a sharp spotlight on the fact that the system doesn't really work for those, for, for those who it really needs to. Do you think that there's resistance to change among the people you were just referring to, the lawyers, judges, other people in the legal system? Uh, yes and no. Let me start with the no. I think there are lots of champions within the system that really want uh, great things to happen. And so I think it would be unfair to paint a broad swath and say there are no champions on the inside of the system because that's just not the case. Um, and that's from judges, from lawyers, from academics, from policymakers, lots of people are working for change. Having said that, sure, there are some people I think on the inside of the system it works really well for, and there's no real, not a desire to change. And I think, you know, there, I'm not, I'm not even needing to ascribe bad faith. I, I simply think it's very difficult to change a moving ship, particularly one as big as the justice system. If we were to design the system from the ground up, from the outside. I think it would be a much easier task than trying to do more than simply tinkering as we're fully underway. Um, you know, having said that, though, I think it's important to recognize a couple of really exciting initiatives that have happened recently that I think may move the dial ultimately. You know, for the first time, the United Nations has put access to justice uh, um, as part of its sustainable development agenda. So by 2030, goals around providing, you know, the goal is SDG 16, um, provide access to justice for all. 
Whether that'll happen or not is obviously an open question, but it, it forces governments and states parties to, to the UN to account for their obligations on access to justice. And that has had a couple of um, sort of trickle down effects. Uh, other international organizations like the OECD are now doing a huge amount of work on the access to justice file. And then in Canada, you know, the federal government, uh, we have a jurisdictional issue in Canada that also aggravates the problem. Um, but the federal government has created an access to justice secretariat. They're taking, you know, more notice and attention to some of these issues. There's a new national study being rolled out, uh, a legal needs study, all I think with a view to taking seriously the access to justice crisis that we're facing now. Um, having said all that, so so I think there's I think there's a lot of good stuff on the horizon. I think there's a lot of uh, goodwill. The missing piece now, I think, is. Uh, bridging that sort of you know, lots of good ideas to really focusing into revolutionary innovation and then ultimately a game plan that we can roll this out all in the spirit of, of making better justice for real people uh, and ultimately hopefully better lives. And so uh, for this to work, like for change to take place at the grassroots level, like in the courthouses, there has to be buy-in from lawyers, from people that are in the courthouses who earn their living there. Do you feel that will be a challenge? Like getting, you know, out of 10 lawyers to have nine of them on board, would that even be reasonable? You know, two years, three years, four years down the road? Yeah, the, the, I, think it, I think it's a challenge for lawyers. Again, not because people are trying to provide bad or inaccessible justice or justice that is inaccessible to self-represented litigants, for example. Going back to your first question, it wasn't designed this way. And so shifting the way lawyers deliver, deliver legal services is tough. I think one of the missing pieces in my mind, or at least still opaque pieces, is the level of urgency with which the profession needs to take to, to address this problem. My worry for the legal profession is that if it doesn't get out in front of this, if it doesn't become part of the solution, society is going to somehow leave it behind. Uh, it's going to go around the profession, you know, in in return for what essentially is a monopoly to provide legal services in Canada. The profession, for example, in Ontario, makes a promise to provide access to justice, and I don't think anyone would suggest that we are making particularly good uh, on that uh, access to justice promise. So. I think the profession itself as a regulatory body uh, and set of regulatory bodies needs to really get behind this through innovation, through opening up the delivery of legal services, being willing to talk about creative solutions that open up who gets to provide uh, legal services in different contexts, uh, different kinds of funding models, different kinds of public-private partnerships when it comes to funding, whether it's insurance or what have you. I think there's a lot that could be done that would be good for lawyers. Um, but it's going to be a slightly different model and they need to get they need to get out in front of this in a bigger way than they've done so far, I think. Do you think one of the contributing factors to the glacial pace of change is the fact that many people in the legal profession, and I know this to be true, view self-represented litigants as being slightly off in some circumstances, even a little bit, I wouldn't say crazy, but I'd say vexatious. And there's this perception, I don't think every lawyer holds that opinion, but I have come across lawyers who do. And it seems from what I've heard, it's more commonplace than I would than you would think. You know, I think one of the things that has been slow to change is the perception 
around self-represented litigants within the, the, the justice system. Um, you know, I think, I think judges through judicial education programs and through mentoring and what have you are starting to realize that their new reality is that their courtrooms are going to be typically filled uh, with not one, not just a couple, but many people who do not have lawyers. Uh, mm -hmm. I think lawyers are starting to realize, particularly in different practice areas, that lots of the files that they're carrying, on the other side of which there will be uh, cases that uh, files that that don't have uh, 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 clients with representation. So we can either fight it, or we can get behind it. And I think people are slowly, slowly starting to get behind it. A huge majority are not there by choice, and a significant majority are there because simply because of cost. Uh, whether they ran out partway through or never had the money to start with account with with counsel. So I think it's a little bit of a blame the victim kind of situation where we need to reframe the dialogue. So obviously you're involved with the Canadian Forum on Civil Justice. I was wondering what is the organization or a re, it's a research organization. What are you doing to help make the legal system more inclusive to improve access to justice. Can you give me some examples of concrete steps you're taking? Sure. So thank you for asking. And the Canadian Forum on Civil Justice was an organization that actually came out of the Canadian Bar Association's Systems of Civil Justice Task Force report that it did in the mid-1990s. And one of the recommendations was to create a national access to justice related organization that could essentially help connect the dots across the country, uh, do research, be a bit of a clearinghouse for good ideas, and, and most importantly, uh, focus on the public. And so I'd like to say we'd, we've had a, at least a small part in the shift in focus from the system to the, to the user, which has happened over the past 10 to 15 years. You know, so for, for example, um, over the years, uh, one of the big efforts was to do uh, a bunch of mapping of, of, of legal services uh, designed to help make more efficient, uh, to connect dots, and to provide sort of a window in onto the services that we provide that we don't provide, ultimately with the goal of, of, of making the system more accessible and more inclusive uh, of the public. A more recent project was um, uh, a a project called the Cost of Justice, which was a, a large seven-year uh, SHRC-funded project. One of the capstone projects was an everyday legal needs study. So our whole goal was to go out into the Canadian population and find out about the kinds of problems that people actually face. And the point of that work is to reframe the conversation around uh, looking at people and looking at their context, looking at their problems, looking at how they solve their problems or don't, um, and then trying to help match services uh, with those problems as opposed to the other way around. One of the unique things about that study, though, that others haven't done was to build in the question around cost. What does it cost to deliver access to justice? And what does it cost if we don't deliver access to justice. Mm -hmm. And it's that second piece that I think was really important for, for everyday uh, Canadians in the sense of, you know, what does it cost for people to access uh, the system per problem? Uh, what does it cost financially? What does it cost personally? What about uh, health? And starting to put some numbers on that that I think has helped focus the mind and raise the temperature on why change is needed 
for self-represented litigants and for everyone, quite frankly. Like connect the dots for me. Like how does this research and the findings of this research lead to substantive change? Like, is it just a matter of, is the research changing opinions? Is there someone taking some of the papers you've produced and saying, okay, we, we've read this paper, we're going to do A, B, and C? So one of the things we looked at earlier on was how do people experience um, the, the uh, problems? Uh, what do people think about them? Getting a sense of the public's um, interface with justice. Uh, and then starting to look at their everyday needs and costs. So developing a, a, an empirical picture of how Canadians experience justice. One of the open questions, though, was, uh, well, can we afford this? Um, you know, what's the, what's the, what are the costs? The simple conclusion um, is that uh, almost universally in all of the projects we looked at around the world, there's a positive return on investment, meaning when you invest in justice, uh, the returns are more than they cost. So when people say we just can't afford to spend any, any more money on legal aid or what have you, my response is, well, if you look at the evidence, we actually can't afford not to. It will save us way more money. For example, in legal aid, somewhere between nine and $16 for every dollar spent. Um, and so it's a good investment. For, and then what about at the grassroots level? Like I understand there's institutional uh, shift in perception. I have experience as a self-represented litigant you know, several years ago. And I know that speaking to lawyers and people in the courthouse, I sense this sort of perception of self-represented litigants as being a little bit irrational, if you, for lack of a better word. I'm sure you understand what I'm getting at. Do you feel there's fewer people in the courthouse now who have that perception than there were five or 10 years ago? Um, yes, I think so, simply because the issue has been has been put on the table uh, and people are starting to, to, to try and do something about it. And we've got some significant leaders in the justice community who are sort of forcing the issue. You know, one way to look at this is that there has been a recognition for a long time, particularly among uh, vulnerable communities, about the importance of access to justice. I'm thinking, for example, in Ontario, of the incredible uh, legal clinic system that have been working for decades uh, with unrepresented people, trying to help giving them representation or at least partial representation, uh, trying to help with systemic law reform um, and, and the like. So there are people working in the communities that have seen the importance of of justice and seen the tragedy of a lack of access to justice um, for a long time. So again, we're not, we're not just discovering this. Um, but I do think that one thing that's sort of moving on that front is uh, efforts around community-based justice. So involving uh, community organizations and members of the communities who are not necessarily lawyers, but who are interfacing with uh, people who have legal problems. And it's not a, a perfect solution because they're not lawyers and they don't, uh, they are not allowed, uh, at least currently, to dispense legal advice. But I think there's a huge amount of expertise out there that can help with a lot of, uh, a lot of problems, particularly when we're talking about self-represented litigants who often have very little, if any, help at all. And then in terms of, let's suppose, you know, blue sky here for a moment, and there's suddenly a huge amount of money to be spent on improving access to justice. In your opinion, what should the first investment be? Like, hmm. What would take priority there? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, 
that I actually have thought a lot about. I'm not sure I have a perfect answer, but I think the first big investment would be to look at how people experience the problems and then move services way earlier on, way upstream, uh, and be more creative in terms of the menu of options we have, starting with education and empowerment, and then providing lots of off-ramps and lots of support so that people don't have to get way down their legal problems before they can uh, before they get to a service when things have gone really badly their life has fallen apart and so much could have been avoided with some early intervention so you know that's I think that's the general and then in terms of the specific I would look at all of the innovations around around that early intervention uh, stuff as a starting point uh, not the end point but a starting point what I know from speaking to self reps and to Julie and others working in this area one common complaint is the lack of transparency, not just with the Canadian Judicial Council, but also with the Law Society and its disciplinary hearings and that kind of thing. So there have been calls to increase transparency so that people know what's going on, you know, in these areas. Do you feel that's critical as well? Yeah, I mean, I think I think transparency is really important. Um, you know, for example, open court processes. That's it's a slightly different care, but, but part of the point of that is transparency to see how justice is done, to be able to trust justice, to be able to understand what's going on. I think gone are the days where we can simply say justice gets to do whatever it wants, and the rest of the society needs to be accountable. I think now everyone in the modern day and age, like it or not, needs to be accountable. People need to understand what's going on because ultimately people need to trust uh, the system. Whether they like the results or not, that's besides the point sometimes. It's really, do they get what's happening? Do they understand why, why something's happening to them? And, uh, and can they ultimately respect the system? And I'm not suggesting we should get rid of core values such as independence and impartiality and rule of law and all that. Of course, I believe in all that. We've got to maintain that. Um, but part of the rule of law does, does uh, include the idea that people can see can can know what's happening, uh, mm -hmm. things are published, um, and so you know, sure, there may be there may be parts of society, parts of hearings, parts of governmental decisions that are done in camera, done in in confidence, and that's fine. Um, but by and large, I think transparency is good for justice. One of the things that really struck me from that conversation that I don't remember hearing somebody say exactly this way before, and I quite liked it, was when Trevor mentioned that there is kind of a blame the victim attitude yeah. around self-reps within the justice system that we've seen from judges and from lawyers. And, yeah. you know, he talked about that, you know, obviously that's a problem that we need to, to kind of bring into the light and look at it. We need to examine obviously the reasons behind that. Why are we, why is there this tendency to kind of blame self-reps for what they're going through? And I just never really heard somebody use that phrase in this context before, but I think it's really true and really helpful. Yeah. And I mean, I think it, it's just a measure of the discomfort mm -hmm. that many people within the justice system who are accustomed to doing things in the same way for many years or, you know, evolving ways, but ways that they felt they had full control over. I think it's an expression of discomfort that it doesn't mm -hmm. feel quite that steady any longer uh, because there are so many members of the public now who are participating in these processes. And of course, we know that really 
changes things. And, you know, Trevor also said he thought, and I agree, that there are members of, of, the, of the bench who are starting to really not just accept, but, but actually embrace a new mm-hmm. reality here. And, and I just would like to do a quick shout out on mm-hmm. that point. We just this week released a new evidence primer. This is something that we've heard self-reps talk about for many years as an area that they often stumble on. And we are extremely grateful to our the co-authors of that primer, uh, Martha Campbell, who is a retired practitioner, and Mr. Justice Conlon, who was uh, the, the co-author with Martha of that. And, you know, great example of judges getting behind the fact that if you give self-reps more information, enable them to be more prepared, more functional, that's actually going to make life a lot easier for them in their courtrooms as well. Absolutely. Um, and of course, related to that, Randy asked Trevor about why is there such a slow pace of change? Mm-hmm. Why has this perception around self-reps? Because, it, you know, as we say, it, it is starting to change, obviously, but why has it been so slow? Um, and, you know, is it going fast enough, kind of? And, right. um, and it, you know, I really appreciated what Trevor said about how both the profession and the judiciary need to have more of a sense of urgency around this change or they're going to be left behind by the public like it's really starting to pick up pace and then you know also kind of get them trying to get them to understand that like you can either fight this which is a losing battle because you're not going to change the tide here or you can get behind it right exactly and I and I and I did also really appreciate Trevor describing this as you know urgent increasingly Mm -hmm. urgent and We have a great example at the moment. Uh, The Law Society in Ontario is still considering um, the plan that they announced um, last year, Family Law Action Plan, which amongst other things will enable paralegals to do some limited family work, which is something which, of course, you know, we're on kind of press repeat on this one. (laughs) Um, it's, It's come up before, it's also come up in British Columbia. And, you know, from my discussions in the last few weeks, there is still a lot of pessimism amongst those, including NSROP, who support expansion of paralegal practice with trained and qualified paralegals uh, into this area where people desperately need help now. And, you know, you cannot escape the fact that paralegals cost less per hour than lawyers do. And there is still pessimism that this is actually going to get through again this time. So um, I would also say, you know, to people listening, if you support the extension of family practice, some dimensions of family practice carefully, carefully laid out to paralegals, um, I think, you know, this is the time to make your voice heard. And Mm. Most of all, the voices that need to be heard are, I'm afraid, the establishment voices, those who have usually um, been raged against this. So plenty of support from the public. We know that at NSRLP. Um, But what we also need are people to champion this change and recognize the urgency within the system Mm -hmm. too. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, talking about kind of why that matters and why it's so important. One of the the final things that Randy and Trevor talked about was um, part of the work of the Canadian Forum on Civil Justice Mm. has been looking at kind of the cost of access to justice and, and, you know, asking, you know, what does it cost if we deliver access to justice in the system? What does it cost if we don't? Yeah. And then 
that it has in turn helped kind of focus the conversation within the system on why this change is so needed, because they're able to point out the fact that when you do invest in access to justice and the justice system in these ways, the returns are much greater than the right. costs. And right. it's you, you kind of can't afford not to. And I think that that's been a, a very important contribution that Trevor's team have made here and shows, you know, what we intuitively imagine from a common sense perspective, that if people don't have access to justice, there are all kinds of other ways in which the mm. state has to support them. They may lose their housing, they may lose their employment, they're, you know, or they're not, they're not going to be very productive if they're in, in family crises that cannot be intervened in, in an effective way. And, and I think that you know, the one other thing I would just pull out from this that Trevor talks about partway through the conversation when they're talking particularly about, so what are the good practice ideas that we need here? This cost research shows like so many other pieces of research show that early intervention mm. and the ability to access some kind of a service that will enable dealing with conflicts, especially in the family area before they escalate, people get really entrenched. You've got lawyers on both sides. Those early intervention steps are tremendously important. And in a way, I think that's a really good kind of motif for where that's costs analysis takes you. Intervene um, more proactively and do it earlier. Welcome back to In Other News. My name is Katie Paff and I will be your news correspondent on this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. For any new listeners, this segment is all about summarizing news stories in the world of access to justice. I'm happy to recap the following news stories from the past few weeks. For our first news story, after four years, Bill C-3, which requires sexual assault training for new judges, has become law. It is on the record that sexual assault cases will now be heard without the influence of myths and stereotypes. This is of great importance because many critics have said that court rulings have been driven by stereotypes and victims of sexual abuse. The bill requires the Canadian Judicial Council to report on continuing education seminars offered on matters related to sexual assault law and social context. It also amends the criminal code to require judges to state their reasoning for their decision in sexual assault proceedings on the record, a win for access to justice. For our second news story, continuing with our theme of access to justice support for gender-based violence, the federal government has made a $30 million budgetary commitment to national early learning and childcare systems and other investments in promoting women's socioeconomic equality, including the support of sexual violence survivors. This investment has received praise from the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund. Such a commitment is in direct response to feminist advocacy and will advance efforts to eradicate gender-based violence on the path to gender equality. The federal budget also includes $85 million dedicated to a national initiative promoting independent legal advice and representation of sexual assault survivors and pilot programs for intimate partner violence survivors. This paired with the news of the passing of Bill C-3 shows tremendous promise. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next episode for another thought-provoking conversation.